James Brogel is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and an adjunct professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He specializes in state and federal regulatory procedures, cost-benefit analysis, and economic growth. Today, he applies that expertise to the current COVID-19 pandemic as he challenges the regulations that have been put in place for testing and suggests reforms that could bring effective tests to the public faster. Let's listen in. Our speaker today is James Brog. He's a senior uh, research fellow at the Mercatus uh, Center at George Mason University and an adjunct professor at the Anton Scalia uh, Law School. He's a regular contributor to publications like Politico. Uh, Today, James is going to talk to us about how regulations that may have made sense in normal circumstances in the medical field and the pharmacological field may have gotten in the way of our responses to to COVID-19 and how we might attack the regulatory thicket in a way to get those those things that are a problem out of the way while we try to solve the problem. James, you have the floor. So really there's two topics I'd like to discuss today. So the first, as we heard, is that clearly there've been some hiccups in the process of especially getting testing going in the United States. And we over the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of regulations either suspended or, or waived um, at really all levels of government, at the state level and federal level. Um, and this is, I think, raising questions about um, the, the usefulness of some of these regulations to begin with or um, or whether maybe they should be amended in some way so that we don't have these kinds of problems again in the future. And so I'd like to talk a bit about a way that we could set up a process for reviewing regulations uh, on a periodic basis to ensure that they're as effective as they could be. Um, and then second, I'll talk a little bit about some reforms that can be made to pharmacy regulations in particular that I believe could help ramp up testing on a much bigger scale in the United States in the weeks and months ahead. Um, So on the first issue, we've seen a number of of governors uh, issue executive orders or actions of various kinds over the last few weeks, waiving many regulations, uh, particularly in the medical field. Um, We're seeing occupational licensing regulations waived, which uh, restrict who can who can work in certain professions as a physician or a uh, or a nurse practitioner for example now they're not they're not saying anyone can do these activities but states may be saying that we'll accept licenses from out of state or we'll enter into a reciprocity agreement whereby um, if someone has a license in another state maybe we'll accept that in our state as well um, or if someone recently retired from um, as a physician and we'll let them come back and have a license um, very quickly. Um, certificate of need regulations are regulations that restrict um, how many hospital beds, for example, a, a hospital could have, or even whether a hospital can be built in a particular area um, or whether particular pieces of medical equipment are allowed. Um, these kinds of regulations have been waived. Uh, and at the federal level, we're seeing all kinds of testing regulations being waived. So the uh, FDA has created an emergency process whereby uh, COVID-19 tests are getting faster approval. Um, this actually has led to some delays, kind of counter 
intuitively because some of the labs that did may have had authority under the old system um, during ordinary times actually had to get special emergency authority to issue to start doing COVID-19 testing. And so they had to get approval for that and go to the FDA. There was a certain period of time where only the CDC, they had the only test in the country that was approved by the FDA and that test had problems with it. Um, and so that led to delays in testing. And so there have been these kind of regulatory hiccups that have occurred. Um, and in particular, I would say in the testing space and, and also in the area of perhaps restricting the supply of um, medical equipment. Um, and, that, and that's leading to concerns about potentially hospitals not being prepared if there's a huge inflow of, of patients. So with that background in mind, um, this is raising questions about whether a lot of these regulations made sense to begin with. Um, I know in, in the case of occupational licensing regulations or certificate of need regulations, there's a lot of concern among economists of all particular political stripes that some of these regulations seem like they exist primarily to just restrict who can work in a particular profession um, or what, how many hospitals there are. Um, and that might benefit the, the kind of incumbent hospitals, but make it harder for someone to build a new hospital. Um, and so um, there's questions even during ordinary times about whether a lot of these regulations make sense, but now during an emergency, there's really many more questions. And so many people might be surprised to learn that although we have pretty rigorous procedures for creating new regulations, we don't have the same sort of systematic processes for reviewing existing regulations on the books, at least at the federal level. Um, some states have review processes, although they tend to be quite limited. Uh, but at the federal level, there's really no process for systematically reviewing all the regulations that exist on the books. Um, and so the closest thing we have is something called the Regulatory Flexibility Act, which uh, essentially says that um, periodically re re rules that review that impact small business need to be reviewed. But that, that act is typically thought not to have much teeth to it, and there's not really any penalty if agencies don't comply with it. Um, so I have one idea I have to, to help spur more review of, the, of, of existing regulations, of looking at rules that are on the books to determine whether they're working as intended or not. Um, is to basically periodically have rules go through the rulemaking process like they're a new regulation. Um, so our regulatory system really has two pillars to it. Um, one is the Administrative Procedure Act, which sets up all the, the process for creating new regulations. And the second is a review process that happens at the Office of Management and Budget to ensure, it's basically like a quality control review to ensure that regulations are likely to be cost effective. Um, so the Administrative Procedure Act process creates, um, cre creates a way for the public to participate in rulemaking. There's a commenting process. It creates a role for courts so that if you're harmed by a regulation, you could challenge a, a rule in court uh, and, and um, kind of ha have your voice heard. Um, and then this Office of Management and Budget review process uh, requires agencies to create cost-benefit analysis, sometimes when their regulation is, is going to have a certain economic impact. 
Um, and then it, it gives this kind of quality control check where the analysts at OMB review rules to make sure, hey, does this really make sense? Um, is this too costly relative to the benefits we're getting? And, and they're asking those sorts of questions. Um, so we have that pretty rigorous process that new rules have to go through. But then once rules are on or get through that gauntlet and are finalized, then they, they're generally never looked at again to, to turn with that same level of scrutiny. Um, so I, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that found about 68% of regulations on the books have never been amended. Um, and so there's, it's, it's pretty challenging to get a regulation in place. Um, and so once agencies have gotten through that process and they've gotten through judicial review and the rule is, is finalized, very often they, they're hesitant to amend it because it could open themselves up to challenges again. Um, however, I think it's critical that regulations periodically be reviewed and receive that same level of scrutiny. And so one thing that could happen is that you could build sunset provisions in the regulations. Um, so rather than add an entire new process for analyzing regulations on top of the existing process, which could be get to be pretty cumbersome and complicated, you could simply say that, say, after 10 years, a regulation will expire. And if it's going to continue, then it needs to be refiled as a new regulation, even if it hasn't changed. And then it would get be opened up for public comment. It would have cost-benefit analysis requirements. It would go through the OMB review process um, anew. And there are a couple advantages to this approach. One is that it's fairly simple. Um, another is that we have uh, the experience of states which have these uh, sunset provisions, and they seem to work fairly well. So New Jersey is an example of a state that has uh, a seven-year sunset attached to its regulations. And um, about a third of the regulations promulgated each year in New Jersey are readoptions, meaning they were rules that were existing and they're being readopted. However, the vast majority of them are amended in some way. So they're being updated to reflect changing circumstances. And so that's really one of the things you wanna see with a sunset review process is that regulations aren't just kind of renewed with, without any changes made, that there's some kind of, there's some recognition that maybe the world has changed, technology has changed and rules need to up, be updated to reflect that. Um, and that's that's how we end up with not having all these regulations on the books that are decades old and maybe don't reflect the modern economy um, any longer. Um, North Carolina recently implemented a sunset review process that looks somewhat similar, that appears to be working pretty well. Idaho is another state. Uh, I'm working on a policy brief right now for the Mercatus Center that kind of outlines some of these uh, potential models that could be followed. Um, Another system, another process that could potentially work for reviewing existing regulations would be creating a commission uh, and tasking it with maybe to start just looking at those rules that um, created problems during the crisis. Uh, so maybe some of the FDA rules or the CDC rules. Um, but really, there have been rules across a wide span of agencies rolled back. I know that um, there's financial regulations that are hampering some of the efforts to get stimulus checks out the door to people and make loans to small businesses. Um, so those regulations should also be woven into 
any kind of review that would happen. Um, so you could potentially create like a temporary commission to review regulations that maybe that were suspended during the crisis. Um, at the state level, you need individual states to also do something similar. There's many regulations that are being waived are also at the state level. Um, and that could potentially work. And, it, and if that were effective, it might make sense to have a commission like that all the time that was just periodically maybe going title by title through the code or agency by agency through the code each year and making recommendations about how rules could potentially be updated or modified. Um, yes, are there questions for James at, the, at, the, at this point in his presentation? He's got further presentation on, on pharmacological issues. I've got a question. If you can hear me, Chris yep. Freilich here. Uh, another person I read a lot of is Philip K. Howard. He writes a lot of books on this sort of subject. But my, my partic particular question is, are there any good models for identifying particularly bad regulations that should go or particularly good ones that should stay rather than sunsetting everything or doing nothing? So... I guess I would say two things. The first is from a, an economic point of view, the regulations that are that you really want to target are regulations that have are imposing a lot of costs and aren't generating much in the way of benefit. And in order to identify those regulations, you really need economic analysis of some kind, which is why a, any, a review process is going to have to have some kind of cost benefit analysis requirement. If you want it to be economics-based and scientific. Um, so the alternative to that would basically just be giving a lot of discretion to the regulators themselves and say, we're, we're, we're directing you to re review your rules, identify regulations that are ineffective or counterproductive, and we'll leave the judgment up to you, the experts, essentially. Um, but if you want something that's a little more rigorous, then you really need economic analysis. And that's why I think a sunset review process could help because essentially we have that economic analysis process already in place. It just only exists for new regulations. So rather than create a new economic analysis process for retrospective review, for looking back at existing regulations, I'm just suggesting that we periodically put existing rules back through that process. I think that would be simpler than say, passing a law that says we have retrospective analysis requirements for, for the biggest regulations. You could also do that, um, but some kind of analysis I think is, is gonna help make it more evidence-based, which I think is what you want. Um, but that's, it's hard to do, it's time consuming, it's expensive. Sometimes it takes a year just for agencies to analyze one rule. Um, so if you're not willing to apply that level of rigor to the review process, then you're probably gonna end up having to leave a lot of discretion to the agencies. And in, in the states where we've seen states make significant headway in reducing regulatory burdens, that's very often what they do since they don't have very, they don't have much analytical capacity. They don't have economists and analysts on staff. They just say, you know, like Oklahoma, the governor issued an executive order a few months ago that said agencies need to cut 25% of their regulatory requirements. That's somewhat of a blunt tool. 
Um, but he's basically left up the left the decision up to the agencies about what to keep and what to cut. James, what what about if the the regulated entities could push back on the regulations? Right. So I've actually I've worked with a number of states over the last several years that have instituted regulatory review efforts, and many of them have, for example, created websites. Um, and on their websites, they'll usually say, hey, businesses, please submit all the examples of regulations that you don't like um, so that we can review those regulations. Um, in general, this approach is not that effective. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is just that the business community we, tends to be very focused on the latest regulation that's coming down the pike. That's kind of an annoyance to them. But once the regulations are in place, um, they're usually hesitant to remove it. They've already complied. Uh, maybe it's acting as a barrier to potential competitors. And it, very often businesses will resist removing regulations that have been on the books for a long time. Even if those regulations, there isn't much justification for them. Um, I, would, I would say um, there are exceptions. So Missouri is a state that had a regulatory review a couple of years ago, and they were very aggressive at having public meetings, reaching out to the public, reaching out to businesses and trade associations and getting comments about regulations that were bothering people. And they were pretty successful, but you have to be really aggressive. Um, in general, there actually just isn't a major constituency for um, going back and looking at a lot of old regulations that are on the books. And, and that's in part for the reasons I just mentioned that um, it's really the latest regulations that tend to be most be of most concern to the business community. Other, other questions for James on the, on <coughs> his approach to um, retesting regulations for cost benefit analysis? Yeah, this is Bill Galston. Uh, I'm just thinking about this from a practical point of view. Uh, the last time I checked, uh, the number of new final rules issued annually is between 3,000 and 4,500. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so... If you had something like a universal sunset uh, on a 10-year basis, you would be multiplying the analytical burdens on the agencies uh, and on the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is the eye of the needle through which each new rule mm -hmm. would pass. You'd be multiplying those burdens many times over. You would need an OIRA that filled the entire old executive office building to have any chance of handling that kind of flow, and agencies would be doing nothing else. So how does this work? Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the vast majority of those regulations that are finalized each year don't go through OIRA review, and they don't get cost-benefit analysis attached to them, and that's just because they're too small. Um, so only what are called significant regulations, which are about 8% of regulations, go through OMB review. And an even smaller fraction of those 
probably between one to 2% of all regulations have cost benefit analysis. So it would primarily be really just the biggest regulations that I'm talking about that would have to go through uh, all of these procedures again. I, I think it makes sense to have the smaller regulations have to be refiled. <clears throat> Maybe 10% of the code, it was expiring each year. If, the, if we say had a 10 year staggered sunset or if regulations, if regulations expired after 10 years, then roughly 10% of the code would be expiring each year. That might be more manageable. So you're not, you're not having the entire code expire um, all at once. You're having a small fraction of it and those regulations would, would be refiled and a small fraction of those regulations, just the biggest ones, the ones that are deemed economically significant would have to go through OMB review and would have to have cost benefit analysis attached to them too. So I don't think it would be as many regulations as you're worried about. It would just be the most significant ones. Yeah. Even so, if you add, you know, if let's say you added, you know, full regulatory review of 2% of the 10% of the regulations expiring each year on a staggered basis, that would still mean an enormous increase in the work of agencies in OIRA to deal with the backlog along with the constant flow. So one way or another, you're talking about a significantly increased burden on, on agencies in OIRA, uh, unless the hypothesis is that while you're doing all this backlog review, uh, the issuance of new regulations is ground to a halt, but that's not going to happen. I mean, I think it's also possible to increase resources. Uh, OIRA is a very small entity. There's about 40 or 50 people working there. So, I mean, you could double the size of OIRA and that would cost basically nothing as far as the, the federal government. I think the whole agency's budget is 10 or 12 million. If you doubled that budget, that's, a, I mean, that's nothing in terms of federal spending. How many economists work across the government? It's not a lot. I mean, there's, there's really a handful of economists maybe at each agency. If you doubled that, you're talking... You're talking about low millions of dollars yeah. compared to, you know, but agency budgets are you know, yeah, sixty billion maybe a year, but even that is a drop in the bucket. Well, I guess I can support this as a full employment program for economists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would probably create some work for us. <laughs> this is Pitch Johnson. I got a, a short one uh -huh. uh, during this. Uh, COVID era, they're already doing it, but is regulatory change required with a very short handle on it to get some of these uh, drugs that are maybe safe but unproven uh, in the hands of consumers? If they can prove safety, the, the other parts of the trial may be able to be put aside or late, delayed and get people some of these uh, uh, drugs that are under consideration. Is that happening or should it happen? So I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert on the FDA regulation, but so the FDA has a mandate to ensure the safety and the effectiveness of drugs before they're allowed to market. There are some who say maybe we only need the safety component to be evaluated, that it's less important that drugs are effective, just as long as they're not hurting people. Um, but for the time being, I mean, the, the FDA is um, it's not putting it's not 
putting aside its its mandate. I mean, if any vaccine, for example, that might come to market to deal with uh, COVID-19 is gonna have to go through that FDA approval process and be demonstrated to be safe, safe and effective. Basically, they have safety and then effectiveness. And, and then uh, the, the last phase is, has to do with uh, pricing. But uh, it, it may be to the national interest, get, getting to market may not be the issue because they may not have to not be going to market in the normal way. So uh, there, there may not be no answer to it, but it seems to me once the thing is proven safe to virtually everyone, then the, the phase two could be partly public. That's <coughs> It may also be the case that drugs that are already approved for another use have some effect on COVID-19. I think we're already starting to see a little bit of that. Um, so those those drugs are already in the marketplace and using them for off-label uses or uses that they weren't necessarily originally intended for um, is allowed. And so hopefully there's some drugs out there already on the market that could make it there. You, you can do off-label now, but you can't promote a drug for that. Right, drug. right. So that's another potential change. There are, there's, a, there's some new drugs under development, which they'll have to look at it from a new point of view, maybe very short approval or I, I don't know. You know the question and I, there is no answer right now. Hey, um, Nan. Go ahead. Nan. Yes, go ahead. John Muse, I, I have a different slant on this, and maybe I'm uh, uneducated on it, but I'm, I'm not. I don't know anything about healthcare or medicine, but I am a businessman that had been a consumer either personally or through our companies for thirty years, and I think we're talking about the symptoms rather than the cure. I think what's required here is truly transformational. What we all want is whatever the product or service is, is faster, better, cheaper. And it seems to me that all these regulatory bodies and all these regulations have over decades been constructed by participants in the industry, the big insurance companies, the big pharma companies, the AMA itself to constrain supply and constrain competition. Shouldn't we be looking at that? I mean, if, we, if we're gonna get better outcomes, we need more doctors, more healthcare providers, more insurance companies, more drug companies, and probably less regulation. Obviously, regulatory, regulations for safety. Um, and more penalties for people that defraud Medicare and Medicaid instead of another five books worth of regulations trying to define what is fraud. Um, so I, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree that, and I, that it's a problem that regulations are often shaped by the regulated entities um, and to some extent, that's it's hard to avoid. Um, when an agency is considering writing regulation, they're going to go to the, the various parties who the regulation is likely to impact and talk to them and get their perspective. And it's kind of somewhat inevitable that the 
the industry that is regulated will tend to have a certain amount of influence over what those regulations look like. Um, that's a very difficult problem to get around. And it's especially challenging once the regulations are in place and you, you realize maybe there's something wrong with them and you want to try to do something to change it. Um, so just as an example, these are the regulations I spoke about earlier, occupational licensing regulations, which are strict supply of physicians or nurse practitioners or scope of practice regulations that say only a physician can prescribe or you know a pharmacist can't prescribe or, uh, or can't test for certain um, illnesses. Um, many of these regulations for years have been, have been lobbied for by particular um, industry groups. And if you even talk about changing them, there will be a huge reaction against trying to modify them from the industry that's regulated. It's especially true of occupational licensing regulations. Um, and so that is just, a, that's a ongoing challenge. I don't think anyone's figured out completely how to overcome that issue. Because once rules are in place, there's always some constituency that benefits from them, whether the regulation's achieving its goals or not. And if, if your intention is to change that regulation, you're going to meet resistance. And so that's one of the reasons why I'd like to see more of a, a systematic prop review process where it's the review happens automatically. Um, that's where I think sunset provisions can help. And then I think cost benefit analysis can help because it provides sort of this outside, more objective um, perspective, scientific kind of perspective um, that can help us escape from the, from the discussion that the way that interest groups tend to frame it. James, James, it's Tony. I think <clears throat> you have some thoughts on how we can use the pharmacy industry Sure. Uh, to uh, quicken the testing for COVID-19. Can you share those? So, yeah. So I'll try to move through this quickly, but I, I did put out a policy brief about how um, relaxing certain pharmacy regulations, I think, could help ramp up testing significantly in the country. So there's about 300,000 licensed pharmacists in America. 90% um, of Americans live within five minutes of a pharmacy. Um, we clearly have a major problem right now where uh, everyone recognizes we need more testing. Um, we just don't have the information right now in order to determine how, how significant the problem is we face, whether it's getting better, whether it's getting worse. And I think no one is willing to completely reopen the economy until we have a better sense of what's happening and we have the information which we need. And everyone agrees that's going to happen with more testing. Um, so I think that pharmacists could play an important role in this process, um, but there are a few levels of restrictions that would need to be reevaluated in order to, to make that happen. Um, now, on the bright side, some major retail chains are already working with the federal government and with, um, with some state governments as well, like CVS, Walmart, Walgreens. Um, They've had, you know, there was a press conference a couple of weeks ago, the president had with CEOs from some of these chains and they said, we're gonna bring testing to a parking lot near you, essentially. It hasn't happened yet, but um, there actually aren't, don't seem to be many legal barriers standing in the way of them doing that. Um, but 
There are some legal barriers that stand in the way of just pharmacists in general conducting tests like for COVID-19 or for anything else like um, the flu or, or strep throat or simple illnesses like this. Um, and some of them are the same regulations that kind of got in the way of testing um, just over the last few weeks in general. So there's something called the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments, um, which basically sets up a system whereby labs get certified by the federal government, and they have different, different levels of complexity, uh, essentially. Like you could be a high complexity lab that can do all kinds of um, testing. Uh, but some pharmacists, some pharmacies get waived. Uh, they get a waiver from the federal government that allows them to conduct simple tests, like for the flu or strep throat um, or uh, for urinary tract infections or for HIV, or there are some kind of simple tests like this that pharmacies can can conduct if they get this waiver. Um, but the, the number of, of waived pharmacies varies dramatically across states. So in some states, there's basically no pharmacies that have these waivers. And in some states, more than half of the pharmacies have these waivers. Um, and it's primarily a result of state regulations, it appears, um, that explain some of the difference. So sometimes states impose licensing requirements, again, for the kind of who can run a lab. So if they say it has to be a physician, for example, then that might rule out a pharmacy from being able to get that waiver. Um, so some states have established barriers to get, obtaining this CLIA waiver uh, from, the, from the federal government. Um, in addition, um, there are restrictions on what pharmacists could do with that information, even if they can test for it. Um, so can they treat a patient? If they determine that you have the flu, well, did, did they just tell you have the flu and then that's as, as much as they can do for you? Well. In some states, you, they can prescribe based on that information. So Idaho, for example, has very um, liberal laws for prescribing authority for pharmacists. So if a, if, if a test, if a CLIA-waived test comes back positive for some illness, a pharmacist is allowed to prescribe for that. Or if, a, if a, an illness doesn't require a new diagnosis, or um, there's a few other criteria that Idaho allows for, but in these kinds of simple situations, um, pharmacists can actually prescribe to people. And that this could really increase access to care for, for millions of people, potentially, people who don't have an ordinary physician, uh, for example, or, or um, maybe they're used to going to their local pharmacy, but they don't, um, don't like going to the doctor as much for whatever reason. Um, so, and an additional benefit of, of having pharmacists play more of this kind of role is that it takes stress off other parts of the healthcare system. So pharmacists are taking care of more simple illnesses. Um, then those people aren't in the hospital, overwhelming the hospital. Um, if pharmacists can test for COVID-19, um, if you come back negative, then you've saved a doctor at a hospital somewhere who maybe is dealing with other more serious patients some time. Um, and some resources. If, if the person comes back positive, then maybe the pharmacist could refer them to a local facility that can help them. James, um, is, it, is, this, is this something that can be solved at the state level or does it need to be solved at the federal level? Um, it's, it's more of a state issue. Um, I think if maybe there was a, my policy brief was distributed to um, some of you all, if you, have, if you didn't get it, then we can get you a copy. But 
Um, so this CLIA waiver process happens at the federal level. So getting co the, a COVID-19 test um, approved as a low-risk uh, CLIA waived test would happen at the federal level. And, and getting pharmacies themselves, these waivers happens at the federal level so that they can do more of these kinds of low-risk testing activities. But there's already a process for pharmacies to, to get that authority and many pharmacies do have it. Um, but at the state level, there's many regulations that have been set up that make it harder for pharmacies to get those waivers. And so it's, I would say it's primarily a state issue, but there are things that the federal government can do too. Dr. Brogel points out a huge problem with federal regulation. While agencies typically do extensive analysis before new regulations are implemented, they rarely do the same for regulations already on the books. Amid the COVID-19 crisis, Dr. Brogel argues that it is critical for existing regulations to be scrutinized to better reflect current needs and to expand the ability of healthcare professionals to innovate and serve patients. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.